Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. John, chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 22 and go to the end of the chapter. And I know you've been standing to sing, so I'm going to let you sit. But I'm going to read beginning in verse 22. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing him at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Before I pray, I want us, we've, the past couple of weeks, I haven't had the little time before I, we've had a video where we quietly pray together. So this morning, I want you to bow your heads, just spend a little moment here on this Mother's Day, thinking of somebody in your life, somebody you know who needs a spiritual work in their life. They need the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, to lead them to Christ. I want you to spend just a moment praying for that person this morning. Lord, as we pause from our busy week this morning, Lord, as we look forward today to Mother's Day gatherings and meals and all of those things, Lord, we pause this morning to just stop... And lift up those that we love and we care about to you. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in their life, would convict them. Lord, I thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Lord, as you have stated in your word, that your word should be read publicly. And Lord, I thank you that we can hear it, we can speak it boldly. And Lord, I pray this morning as we listen to your word, Lord, as we we hear it, we digest it, Lord, that it changes us when we leave here differently than when we came. In your name I pray. Amen. Earlier this year, 
I heard a story, you know, it's one of those stories that really has absolutely no impact on your life, but you still read about it and look into it anyway because, you know, we have lots of free time on our hands that way. And it was a story about a college admissions scandal. How many of you have heard about this where parents have paid to get their kids into college more than just how much you pay to get your kids into college? Yes. There was a group of people, some of them fairly famous and influential. One of them was Aunt Becky from Full House. How many know Full House? More people know Full House. So out of the TV show in the 90s, I think it's redone on Netflix. Anyway, and she's in some show called When Calls of the Heart. I know that because my wife likes that show. Anyway, but she paid a lot of money to get her daughters into, I think it was USC, uh, the University of Southern California. And it was, uh, you know, one of those things. It's just, I don't know, no, normally you just pay a lot of money to a college. They name a building after you and your kids can go forever. But I don't know what was all this about. But I learned a little bit about... This woman, Lori Laughlin was her name, her daughter. Her daughter is a girl, Olivia Jade. And I didn't know anything about her except that now I've learned she is what's called a social media influencer. That's her career. That's her job. She actually did this before she went to college. She made a lot of money doing it. I was reading about it and it said of this girl who is, I guess, in her early 20s, Olivia Jade, that she has 1.9 million YouTube followers on her lifestyle channel, where she highlights her, quote, strong passion for makeup and fashion. Sounds like me. No, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I walked through the store the other day, and there were, these people were talking about, you know, it was a salon about haircuts, and they tried to flag me down, and I'm like, seriously, do you just, <laughs> really? Her Instagram page boasts 1.3 million followers where she has promoted paid advertisement posts from the likes of Smile Direct Club, the at-home invisible aligner treatment, and Amazon Prime Student, which fully furnished her dorm room. She basically is just online making videos and posting pictures and talking and doing all this and getting paid a lot of money to do it. But then, of course, when this scandal broke out that she got into college because her parents basically paid it off, she lost a lot of it. It began to collapse. It began to, and I kind of lost interest, so I don't really know exactly how it turned all out. But I thought of this this story this morning because as we look at at what happens to John the Baptist in this account, it's, it's hard to grasp what all he lost. Here, as I read about this girl, she's young. She's got her future ahead of her, but she's built up this empire, so to speak. And because of some other things that have happened in a very short period of time, in a very public way, she's losing a lot of it. And that'd be scary, wouldn't it? I mean, there's young people in here. They probably know more about this Olivia Jade than I know. But you build up an online presence. You have friends. You have influence. You start to to make your way in life. And for those of us that are older, maybe it's not the online type of thing, but we have standing, we have a job, we have people that we can influence, we have money, we have bank accounts, we have homes, we have all of these things that we've worked for. And what would it be like if in a very short period of time it started to disappear? You started to lose it all. That's in essence what we see happening to John the Baptist here. John the Baptist was... He was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come along. He was the guy that transitioned from the Old Testament prophetic way to the Messiah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. This was his duty. This was his job. We learned a little bit about him in chapter 1 of this book. And he had become very powerful and influential. He was a little bit crazy. He wore weird clothes and he ate weird food and he lived on the outskirts of society. But 
People by the hundreds, if not thousands, flocked to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. He was baptizing huge numbers of people. He had become so influential, the religious leaders, which were basically the political leaders of the day, were making their way to him to find out more about him. He had disciples. We learned that in chapter 1 because his disciples started to leave him. These were dedicated followers that were with him everywhere he went. You can imagine. I mean, this is a, he's become quite the social media influencer of his day. He would have been able to tweet and blog a lot. But then Jesus comes along, and he, as we learn in chapter 1, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He talks about how Jesus came before him. He talks about Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. He points everyone to Jesus, and at that moment, everything that he had, worldly speaking, begins to go away. Even in chapter 1, two of his disciples at that moment leave, and John the Baptist is pretty good with it. They leave. And then as we get to the end of chapter 3, we see that this all kind of comes to a head. There in verse 22, Jesus and his disciples are in the countryside and they're baptizing. Although we learn in in verse 2 of chapter 4, it's not Jesus himself, but his disciples. But John is still baptizing people. He's there. He's at a place called Anon, which just means springs. There's a lot of water there, so he's baptizing. But in verse 25, we see that there's a discussion that starts to come up between John the Baptist's disciples and an unnamed Jew. And it's over purification, which probably has to do with baptism. And you can kind of read between the lines because it doesn't tell us the discussion. But at the end of this discussion, John's, John the Baptist's disciples come to him with this question. And we see it in verse 26. It says, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness... Look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. You can kind of tell what they're saying. They're like, John, we've dedicated our lives to following you. You had a lot of influence. You were powerful. You were, religious leaders were coming out here. But now, it's all going away. What are you going to do about it? How does this make you feel? What's going on? I mean, people are asking us about it. What's happening? And John the Baptist gives us a great example of how to deal with it. Because as you can tell, if you just kind of take a quick glance at this, it doesn't bother him. Not only does it not bother him, he's, he's excited about it. He's really, really good with it. He ends up, if you know the story of John the Baptist, he's done in this book for the most part. He, goes, he gets imprisoned because he calls out the, the king and eventually gets beheaded. That's the end of his illustrious ministry that begins to kind of disappear here. And so how would you stay stable Spiritually stable if your life right now, as you know it, began to collapse. If your influence at work began to go away, your job began to disappear. Your money starts to dwindle down. John the Baptist, I mean, I don't know how he got paid, but the the people aren't coming to him in the same manner they once were. The religious leaders move on from him for the most part. Well, what we see here is this. You promote Christ. You promote Christ. In every area of your life, every aspect of what you do, this doesn't bother John the Baptist because his life was not about himself. It was not about what he could accomplish or how big of a group of people he had. It was just about Jesus. And because Jesus was growing, he was good with it. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, we kind of break down what John says. I hope these are things that we can look at in our own lives and ask some serious questions. Is this how my life, is my picture of this? 
So let's look. They asked this question of John the Baptist. It says, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. The first thing John says about his life is he promotes Christ in his work, his job. Look at the very beginning of his answer. John answered in verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's the first response. And we don't want to gloss over the the emphasis that would be on the first thing he says. A person can't have anything unless it's given him from heaven. John recognized his work, his ministry, what he was called to do to be the forerunner of Christ. That was simply a gift that God gave him. I coach a lot of different sports. I've coached basketball, t-ball, soccer, flag football, bowling, if you really want to call that a sport, you know, bowling, whatever. I've, I've done a lot of those different things. And one of the things I've noticed is some people just, they have it. You know, you see some kids and they try, they work, they do the best they possibly can. They put in hours of practice and they get better and they improve. And then lo and behold, some other kid shows up that's probably never done the sport before in their lives. And within 10 minutes, they're running circles around everybody. They just have that natural giftedness. And you look at that and you say, ah, man, that's, that's not fair. No, it's not. But life isn't fair, is it? In any real way, it's not fair. What, what we, the way our lives are set up is what John gets here. A person receives what they get from heaven. I mean, even if the kid that works really hard and gets really good at it, what gave him the drive to get really good at it? God. John recognized that in his ministry, in his work. What we have, where we are in life is a gift that God gives us. It is, we would like to say, okay, I get that, that God provides us, but how often in our lives do we drift back to how hard we worked for it, how much we deserve it? I do. There are moments in my life where I look and I say, you know, I, I, if I lose something, I get mad because I feel, well, I deserve that. Not really, it was a gift. John the Baptist, his ministry is, is fading, and he says, listen, it was a gift. I recognize that. God gave it to me, and I, I did what he called me to do, but it's okay if he takes it away. And then the second thing that he says, in addition to, you know, I, I received it from, from him. It's a gift from heaven. Verse 28, he says, you yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He recognized the reason for his work. The foundation was it was a gift from God. The reason was is I was supposed to be the forerunner of Christ. Now that he's here, I don't really need to do that anymore. John knew his role, knew what it was about, and as long as Christ was being promoted, he was good with it. He saw his job as, as that. Now, it's easy for us to see that with John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of Christ. Christ is now here. His job starts to change from what it was. And sometimes it's easy to see that in, with people that are in the ministry. You know, I'm a pastor. You look at me. This is, I do God's work all the time. At least that's what people perceive when they look at the pastor. Well, what about in your ministry, your, your job? What about a plumber or a lawyer or a banker or a guy who works for the, the state or whatever? It's easy for us to look at our jobs and say, well, well yeah, I know I should, should honor God in my work, but primarily what it's about if I'm a plumber is fixing pipes. If I'm a lawyer, it's doing the law. If I'm fill in the blank with whatever job, you know, I do it. But the reality is all of our vocations in life, whatever they is, at, at the end of it, it is about promoting Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing all the time. In whatever capacity we can do that, in whatever job we have. I used to manage hotels before I did this. 
I could say, well, my job was primarily about making sure the hotel was full. But as a believer, my job was making sure Jesus Christ was promoted where I was. You see, when we do that, when we recognize whatever our vocation is, is about promoting Christ, it doesn't matter when we lose it because, well, we can still promote Christ wherever we are. It amazes me how many people, you know, this is graduation season. You know, everybody's graduating high school and college and kindergarten. You know, like there's ceremonies now for kindergarten. And you're graduating, we spend so much time, what are you going to do with, what are you going to do with your life? What's, what's, what's your, what are you going to do? What's your job? What are you going to do? And what's interesting is, is people will come to me as a pastor and, you know, I'm trying to find God's will for my life and what I should do. And it amazes me because the Bible spends virtually no time talking about people's vocations. I mean, Paul was a tent maker. The disciples were fishermen. Moses was a shepherd. I mean, and anytime it really mentions what they did for a living, it's always kind of in passing or in relation to some sort of spiritual need. Because the truth is your vocation is how you put some food on the table, but it's going to come and go. And I almost thought about asking people, are you doing, those of you that are older, that are, you know, 35 and up, how many of you are doing the same career that you were doing when you were 18? How many? Anybody? Raise your hand if you're doing the same line of work now that you're doing when you were 18 years old. I see like three hands. So that lets you know, for those of you who are 18, whatever it is that you're talking about right now, the likelihood that you'll be doing that 20 years from now is really, really low. But the likelihood that you can promote Christ where you're working is 100%. John the Baptist, his ministry was changing. It was disappearing. It was becoming something totally different. But he said, listen, I'm here to promote Jesus. If there's huge crowds, massive numbers of people, then the religious leaders coming, great. If there's three or four people or I'm in a prison cell, I'll keep right on doing it. So he promoted Christ in his work. Point number two, promote Christ in our satisfaction. In our satisfaction, what satisfies us, what makes us content in life. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John talks about, he gives this little illustration about a groomsman and a groom. Now, our weddings are a little bit different than the weddings were back then, but they're similar. You, you, you've been to a wedding. You know, there's the groom, and then he's got his buddies, you know, the, the best man and so on. They didn't really have a best man, but you can still follow the analogy. And the best man, his job while he's there with the groom, groomsman is to try and work to the satisfaction of the groom. He's there to help him out in any capacity. If the groom is happy and excited and joyful that he's about to get married, he's about to be with the woman that he loves, it makes the groomsman happy. John the Baptist, that's what he says about himself. I'm the groomsman. I'm not the groom. My joy, I can't look within myself for my joy and my satisfaction. I look out to the groom. He's getting married. He's waiting for his bride to come down. He's, it, this is an exciting day for him. And because it's exciting for him, it's great news for me too. That's why he says in the last part of verse 29, this joy of mine is now complete. That word complete can also mean full, which I think is probably a better translation there. It's, it's, it's total. And John is saying, look, I'm looking outside of myself to Christ and whether or not he is, is, is complete and he is, is, is his ministry, his way, his gospel is being promoted. I have, I've had a lot of free time by myself with me and my dog. 
For those of you who don't know, my wife, my father-in-law is, is very sick, and so my wife and my kids have had, they've been in Tennessee quite a bit. And so I've had a lot of evenings towards the end of part of the evening when I'm by myself with a dog, and the dog never leaves my side. He's right there all the time. And I'll go out in my my backyard, and I have a little chair that I just kind of sit in. I have these little raspberry or peach Coca-Colas I really like, and I'll just sit there and kind of just think back over the day and kind of have that sense of it's been a good day, you know, satisfied day or whatever. And you've all had that. You have those moments where you just kind of, the day's coming to a close, or you've done something, or you've accomplished something, and it's a sense of satisfaction, right? But to have the ultimate satisfaction in life, the ultimate contentment in life, it can't be based around circumstantial things, can it? Because they can always fall apart. They can always disappear. But for John the Baptist, he recognized ultimate satisfaction and completeness where his joy, his rejoicing is complete is when the the cause of Christ is, is foremost in our lives. If not, and I've been there, we've all been there, it's easy for the circumstances of life to really get us down. I just said, I'm alone a lot right now. And that can get a little depressing and and boring and, and, and whatever. But as a follower of Christ, as I look around and say, but are we being obedient to what God's word has said? Are we honoring our father and mothers in this? Are we doing what? Yes. Then because the ways of Christ are being promoted, then I have that satisfaction. That's why John, in that last verse of, of this first paragraph here in verse 30, says, he must increase... I must decrease. That's a famous line, isn't it? We've all heard that many times. And in John's case, because his ministry was about preparing people for Christ, as Christ comes on the scene, obviously John the Baptist must decrease. He must fade from the scene as Christ becomes greater and greater. Now, in your particular life, in your particular ministry, you may get more famous or whatever, have more influence or do more ministry in the church. But primarily, your job, your satisfaction comes not from what you achieve, what you get, what comes into your life, but whether or not Christ and his gospel is being promoted. As I was reading about this, it was, you know, was kind of talking about pastors. Obviously, I pay attention when it's about pastors. But the truth is, whether it's me or the church, it, it's irrelevant how many people listen to me. It's irrelevant how many people come to Cornerstone. It's irrelevant to how big the ministry becomes if all it is is about being a cornerstone or listening to me. What really matters is, are people following Christ? In John the Baptist's case, that's what he's saying. Listen, I can decrease. I can fade into nothingness. It wasn't ever about how many people were coming to hear me. It's whether or not the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whether he is increasing. Does it satisfy you when Jesus Christ's name is being promoted when we sing these songs, when you see people come to know the Lord, when your children are being obedient, when things are happening that promote the cause of Christ, is that what brings you satisfaction and joy in life? Because if it's anything else, it's not going to get you through the difficult times like what John the Baptist is facing. So we promote Christ in our work and our satisfaction. As we go to verse 31 and what says is a new paragraph here, we promote Christ in our testimony some of you may have a little footnote here that people aren't really sure where the quote where john is john the baptist is speaking if it ends here if it goes all the way to the end of the chapter there weren't quotation marks in greek so we just kind of have to guess i think perhaps he is still talking but either way it doesn't matter because the point is still the same we promote christ in our speech what we talk about verse 31 he who comes from above is above all 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John, as he speaks here, is speaking about the same things Jesus talked about in to Nicodemus, if you remember, and earlier in this chapter, Jesus said there in verse 11, I say to you, I speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is talking there about how he's from above and people, they reject his testimony. They don't listen to what he says. In verse 31 and 32, follow up on that. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. If you remember back in chapter 1, as John opened up this book, he said the same basic thing in verse 11. He said, he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then in the next verse, it talks about those who do receive him, both in the first chapter and here. Verse 33 of chapter 3 says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, what God, that God is true. So in verse 32, he sets up what we call a hyperbole, and he says no one receives his testimony. Well, obviously some people do because the next verse talks about them. But he's saying by and large, most people reject Christ. They reject the words of Christ. They reject his message, but some don't. John the Baptist was one of those. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Remember what's building up to all of this. John the Baptist's disciples are upset because he's losing influence. People are leaving him and going to Jesus. So they go to him, they're leaving us. And John the Baptist is is explaining, you know, that this is okay. And he gets to this part and he says, listen, it's all right. He's from above. And I've set my seal to this. I've set my belief Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one that can grant forgiveness of sins. He is the Son of God. That's what I've, I've been trying to tell you. I've set my seal to this, that God is true. This is what he's all about. And then in verse 34, For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God. I believe this is talking about John the Baptist. He was sent by God. He was the messenger to pave the way for Christ. And he utters what God has told him because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what John does. He promotes Christ. Now, what we see is this becomes basically the command to all of us. Christ dies, rises from the dead, gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what do the apostles do? They go from that point on sharing who Jesus Christ is. That's what Jesus called them. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You're witnesses. You're going to tell people about me. That was the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Your speech should be about promoting me. It should be about talking about me. It should be about sharing who I am. Obviously, this has to do with evangelism. We understand that. We should all be evangelistic. Next week, when we get into chapter 4, we'll look all about evangelism. But it's in every area of our life does our speech promote Christ's Christianity and the gospel. Are you a complainer? Some of the spouses are nudging the other one right now. Are you a complainer? Is there bitterness in your speech? When Paul writes, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Salt, when we salt our food, it makes it taste better. It makes it more palatable. Is our speech in such a way? We live in a day and age where speech is becoming toxic. Go online, read the comment section to any political article ever written in America, and ask yourself, is this good? 
Look on Facebook. Look at what a lot of people who say, hey, I follow Christ, look at how their speech comes across. Is it promoting Christ? Is it Christ-like? As believers, our primary, primary issue with what we say is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we get to the last couple of verses. We see the last thing that John the Baptist talks about in promoting Christ. He promotes Christ in his hope. In his hope, in what he sets his sights on for his future. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John continues to connect throughout this book the Father and the Son. Here the Father loves the Son and all things are in his hand. Eternal life is in his hand. All authority has been given to him as we learn later on. And then verse 36 sums up what basically this entire book has been about for the first three chapters. Who has eternal life and who doesn't? Who has hope and who doesn't? Who has it? Those who believe in Jesus Christ. They have eternal life. But notice what he says in the second part, and it's important to note this difference. Whoever does not what? Obey. Obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I shared this, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. I used a little illustration of a stool. They're gone now, so you'll just have to bear with me for a moment. But what we see in this verse sums up how the first century believer, first century Jewish person understood faith. Faith, and notice that it says obedience, they were connected. Faith and action were connected. This is so difficult for us with our Western mindset. It can be repeated over and over. We have intellectualized faith. We have made faith, do we just agree to a set of, of facts? In other words, if I say Jesus Christ lived, he died, he rose from the dead, faith would be, yes, I agree that that happened. But here we see whoever does not obey the Son, that obedience is directly tied to faith. In other words, if I believe these facts about Christ, you will see it in my actions. There will be something different in the way I live. I will obey what Jesus Christ says. What his word teaches becomes the the, the message and the theme of my life. That's what John the Baptist was all about. His hope was not in his job, was not in his ministry, was not in... How many followers he had, it was not on how much money he had, it was not on all of the things that this world teaches us we need to have. That no matter how spiritual you are, that creeps back into our lives. Does me. When I start to worry about what I could lose, what could go away, what do I tenuously have a grip on in this world, I have to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reminded the only thing that matters is eternal life. The only thing that matters is promoting Jesus Christ and his gospel. All of the other stuff that we worry about, our fame and fortune, will go away. You will lose it all at some point. 